Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. In a bombshell announcement, the Fitch Ratings Agency downgraded U.S. debt from AAA to AA+, on concerns that the United States is uh, piling up more debt without any plan to deal with it. This, as the Federal Reserve's efforts to cool the economy appear to be working, with fewer than expected new jobs created last month, prompting new questions about next steps by the central bank. More earnings this week as Airlease, BAE Systems, Bombardier, Kemring, Garmin, HII, Howmet, Lidos, Parsons, Rolls-Royce, Spirit Aerosystems, and Triumph report earnings. Uh, the U.S. Air Force awarded a contract uh, to electric vertical takeoff and landing company Archer Aviation for six of the company's midnight air taxis to determine their military utility. Uh, the base contract is $6 million, but could be worth up to $142 million if all clauses are exercised. And Ukraine is increasingly using sophisticated long-range unmanned craft to strike ports, infrastructure, and ships in Russian-occupied Crimea. This as global concerns uh, that Ukraine and the nations that supply it may be running out of ammunition. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, who has decamped back to Washington, D.C., and so with great sadness, the Poly Bureau uh, is closed. Uh, gentlemen, welcome back to the program. It would not be a week unless we were convening. Thanks so much for joining us. Vago, always great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, as always, Vago. Yeah, Vago, you know, no matter how heartbreaking it was to close the Volley Bureau, it's fantastic to be back in on the program. Uh, it is it is indeed, and I'm glad you guys had a smooth journey back, by the way. I don't think any other human being I know has made a 15-minute connection in Singapore and actually <laughs> made it back to Washington. <laughs> It wasn't that bad. And Singapore is as well run as ever. Uh, indeed. Indeed. Uh, Disneyland with the death penalty, as they say. Uh, but it is ex- extraordinarily well run uh, city state. Ron, let's start off. Fitch downgraded U.S. debt from AAA to AA+. Uh, they had already downgraded uh, U.S. Uh, debt from uh, AAA+, uh, which uh, was a hit uh, given some of the past uh, antics by Congress uh, about not raising uh, U.S. borrowing uh, l- l- limits and, and uh, flirting uh, with default. And then you've also got uh, the uh, news of lower uh, than expected jobs growth. Obviously, uh, the lo- uh, short-term, in- uh, short-term borrowing rate increases are having an impact. How did the group perform against uh, those sort of broader themes? Yeah, I think you know the, the bigger story really was uh, the downgrade, although the market did get over it. That being said, it was very volatile uh, week. Uh, the S&P ended up down uh, about uh, two and a quarter percent. And if you look at the stocks in uh, the A&D universe, it was, it was really volatile. Um, you know, Spirit Aerosystems reported, and uh, their shares ended the week down almost 30%, 29% and change. Triumph Group was down almost 23%. Uh, if you kind of go across the group, you know, Boeing was down 3%. Lockheed was down about a half a percent. Uh, Northrop was down two and a half percent. So you're getting a feel for uh, that, that sort of thing. Uh, Bombardier actually reported what we thought was a good quarter, and their shares were down almost 11% on the week. So it was it was a choppy week, uh, and I think there's a lot of cross currents. There's you know the downgrade of the debt. What does that mean? Um, what's what's where's the economy going? What's the jobs thing? 
the 10 year yield actually started to go back up again. Uh, so we closed the week with a 10 year yield above 4%, and it hasn't done that in a while. Um, the VIX index, uh, you know, the, the index of fear that we talk about every week, it's gone up. If you remember last week, it was about 13. It's at 17 now. To give you a feel, around 30 is a, is a very, very kind of skittish market. Um, uh, the SPAC index, which we look at, kind of another measurement of, of, of risk appetite, it was down. So you're, you're seeing kind of the risk appetite in the market change. Now, when you think about you know, the U.S., you know, one of the things we talked about before uh, was the credit default swap spreads from U.S. debt. Uh, they're at 35 basis points, which is a little bit below where they, you know, kind of on average are. So the downgrade of U.S. debt didn't really have any impact on the credit default swap spread. So I would say, you know, the the, the sovereign debt markets really could care less at this point about the downgrade of the debt from Fitch. And then oil prices were up uh, a, a smidge over last week, a couple bucks. But it's a trend we've been seeing. You know, so WTI is around 82, Brent's around 86, and it just looks we're see, like we're seeing this upward trend in oil prices as we as we go through the summer. So, um, yeah, I think we're in you know in kind of a, a volatile time in the market because there's just a lot of a lot of cross currents. And then remember, in August, um, probably half of Wall Street's on vacation of some form or another, so volumes tend to be lighter, and lighter volumes tend to drive bigger movements in stocks. Uh, indeed, for uh, for those who uh, are actually uh, paying uh, attention, um, uh, Sash, uh, walk us through uh, Europe, uh, what the drivers were and how the U.S. downgrade uh, impacted shares there, right? Because it's all an interconnected ecosystem. Yeah, it is. Uh, you're absolutely right. But in fact, this week it was results, corporate actions that drove performance um, in the aerospace and defense stocks overall. We had a uh, we had another big. Uh, weaker earnings. You, you mentioned most, but we can't capture all, all of the stocks that, that reported earnings this week. And in general, the stocks that reported earnings did incredibly well. So that just blew through the concerns about the US um, debt downgrade. Just an example, BA Systems, which has been a very, very good performer this year, but BA Systems was up 9% this week. They had excellent results. They raised their guidance. They um, generated very, very good cash in the first half. They raise their cash guidance and they're going to do uh, yeah, another billion and a half of share buybacks over the next couple of years. I mean, there's, there's almost nothing, uh, you know, nothing not to like about BAE's results, um, even though we thought we knew some of this. It was a across the board uh, raise of guidance. The market took that very, very well indeed. Rolls-Royce. Um, Rolls-Royce pre-announced last week that their results were going to be between two and four times better than uh, consensus analyst forecasts. But when they came out with the results today, they was uh, this week rather they were still up six percent for the week. Right. So these are really strong results. Now Rolls Royce is a sort of um, well, it's been coming back from real lows uh, during and just after the pandemic. Um, it had a pretty existential uh, crisis in terms of the amount of debt, in terms of the uh, the proportion of their big civil aero engines, predominantly Rolls Royce Trent engines that were grounded. Uh, especially in China, well, that's just turned around. Large engine uh, fly towers are going up very, very strongly indeed. Rolls is doing a better job of actually uh, getting um, uh, prepayments for services uh, for those. They're doing a much better job in terms of pricing than they were. Um, and so, you know, here's here's the interesting thing: the European civil uh, European civil aerospace uh, stocks that we cover are up forty percent for zero percent this year. Rolls-Royce is up 120% this year. It's starting to look like a, uh, a much more stable, secure company. And that means it, it can start thinking about what next. Uh, you know, 
new engine programs and the really big challenge for the engine companies overall of decarbonisation. So, you know, those were the two standouts in terms of results. But Kemring, um, the much smaller UK-based but you know heavily uh, US and Australian-based uh, countermeasures, explosives, uh, defence technology company, again up six percent. They're doing a doing a big share buyback. That just tells you that they've exited a period of stabilising the balance sheet. They now feel far more confident uh, about their ability to, um, uh, you know, to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so generally, the defence stocks were up much more than the civil stocks, notwithstanding Rolls-Royce's share price performance. Defence stocks up about 3%, uh, civil stocks um, broadly flat, but that was driven much more by um, Safran and Airbus being uh, off uh, after their results a couple of weeks ago than anything else. But a you know, very, very busy week. But I wouldn't say the US debt downgrade had a lot to do with it. Um, uh, Richard, uh, I want to get to uh, Air Lease uh, and um, sort of what their numbers tell us about where, uh, right? I mean, you, you uh, just spent a little over 24 hours or so in transit coming back uh, from uh, sunny Indonesia. Um, walk us through what their numbers mean and, uh, you know, kind of put it in context, uh, given what we saw from the producers. Yeah, you know, you look at both Airlease and AirCap, both announcing results in the past uh, week or so, and both had, you know, fantastic results, uh, double digit increases, uh, you know, quarter over quarter, year over year, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know why okay <laughs> so many reasons that i guess we could have seen basically they benefit from the one happy surprise and the one happy surprise the happy surprise being a far stronger macroeconomic and air travel environment than anyone expected really you know i mean was it 100 percent of economists were expecting a recession which inevitably would have triggered a pullback in discretionary travel spending and it neither of those happened things have, as you say have been on the road for 24 hours and uh, yeah everything's 100 percent fall uh you know really great numbers doesn't look like they're being derailed anytime soon and all of a sudden people were saying hey we might just have the sort of ultimate you know immaculate soft landing um the term of the week i heard was immaculate disinflation basically disinflation with absolutely no pain you know associated with higher interest rates and and wow okay that's fantastic so they're benefiting from that but they're also benefiting from the unhappy surprise which of course is that it's taking far longer than anyone predicted to uh, ramp up on production um basically they have jets other people do not <laughs> right. they win period now there are other things you know one thing is that if you run a large lessor you have to be good at picking your portfolio you know no dogs and of course follow the trends etc cetera, etc cetera. um it just happened for a whole bunch of reasons mostly related to market liquidity that lessors have always favored single aisle jets um you know, there are simply more customers you can place them with. It's simple math. Okay, that means that typically you, you do fine with that half of the market. And then wide bodies, well, to a certain extent, but you generally tend to be a little underexposed there. Well, what's happened, of course, is this massive secular fleet shift away from twin aisles and towards single aisles. So not only do people want jets, they want single aisles, and these guys tend to be heavily exposed to single aisles. It's interesting, um, both Airways and Aircab have noted that jet sales are up too. So people aren't willing to just, you know, lease them. They want to 
buy them. So you know, it, they have assets. People want those assets. They're gaining. I expect they'll gain for some time until either the travel, uh, the strong travel growth trends are derailed for some macro reason, um, or somehow magically Airbus and Boeing solve all their supply chain problems and get to where they want to be in terms of single aisle output. Until then. The big lessors are doing just great. And interest rates, you know, typically that that's sort of a double-edged sword for lessors. Suffice to say, they're well into the into manageable territory, hasn't proven a major headwind uh, for them. And a quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors are Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors are Air and Naval uh, Coverage. Uh, Ron and Sash, you guys want to take a bite at that apple before we move on? Sure. I mean, there's a couple points that add to what Richard said. Um, and uh, I mean, he's exactly right on every point. Um, I would say this too, however... Uh, when uh, Aircap made the acquisition of the uh, GCAS portfolio, they did also acquire an engine leasing business. And it's uh, for all the reasons we all know in terms of what's going on in the engine market, the engine leasing business is actually booming right now too. Uh, and then one more point I would add on the aircraft sales, and this goes back to Aircap as well. They picked up that GCAS portfolio from a motivated seller uh, basically at the bottom of the cycle. So when you think about aircraft sales and the, the potential gains they could take there in the current environment, things look pretty good for them. Sash, uh, I think you wanted to add something on Airbus? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got nothing to add to uh, what Richard and Ron said really about the leasing companies. But you know, um, Richard quite rightly brought up the issue of um, to how the, the two OEMs are really lagging in terms of aircraft production. And hence, there's, there's going to be a squeeze on uh, on numbers of available new aircraft for several years to come. Uh, but just put that in context, I think the, the interesting thing was that Airbus um, uh, deliveries in July were really good. They were way better than we'd forecast. They had a good uh, June, but being rather cynical, we thought, well, they always end the quarter as strongly as possible because that's what uh, determines the, the company's quarterly results. But to start the summer quarter strongly, July, is a, is very, very unusual. So this was actually the um, one of the two strongest uh, July's, or sorry, three strongest July's Airbus has done ever, delivered 65 aircraft. And every aircraft program beat our forecast by one, two, three, four uh, aircraft, wide bodies particularly, but even the A220, and the A220 has been the dog. So, you know, it, this is not going to turn the situation around for the le leasing companies probably before 2025. But in terms of can Airbus actually overcome this feeling that it is uh, a pretty high risk uh, play on whether they can deliver their full year uh, target of around 700 deliveries, our feeling is that they are starting to look and probably another good month or so starting to look as if that 700 deliveries is comfortably in reach. They could even beat it. Ron, um, I want to get uh, to earnings. Uh, Saf did a great job sort of giving us a roundup of some of the leading uh, lights uh, in Europe. Uh, give us a sense on what some of the U.S. companies uh, that uh, reported, right? I mean, obviously, we saw uh, we saw uh, Garmin. Uh, we saw Bombardier, right? Not necessarily American, but certainly uh, listed. HII, Howmet, Lidos, uh, and Spirit Aerosystems and Triumph all reported as well, right? I mean, some of these were sort of understandable stories, right? Certainly on Spirit, we sort of knew, given the labor agreement and some of the other uh, supply chain ch challenges the company has had, but some surprise like HII, kind of walk us through the whole group and how they performed and what you thought was interesting. Yeah, I think there's a couple 
things uh, this week. And we'll start with some specific companies and then we can pull back the aperture. Um, I mean, the real, real story that attracted, you know, the real lightning rod this week was Spirit Aerosystems. Uh, you know, the day they reported, the shares ended down a little over 30%. And, and a lot of that had to do with many factors. And it wasn't just the, the union deal. They, they pretty much took losses across everything they do. Um, they even sort of suggested in some of their defense businesses, they're taking losses. They pushed out their, their cash flow uh, generation targets uh, by a couple of years. And that caused investors to start worry about their liquidity. Um, they've got some big repayments due in 2025. Uh, and it, 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 it really caused some intense worry. And you saw that in the stock and ended up the week down 29%. Didn't really bounce back much. Another one, you know, was you know, Triumph Group and Spirit reported the same day, and it was sort of like who could race to the bottom. Um, Triumph Group reported, and the shares were quickly down uh, about fifteen percent. And again, there that was concern over uh, misexecution in one of their business units, and you know that story had been the narrative around that was you know it's a turnaround story, and this one business unit was going to do better, and then it really didn't. Um, and you know, one quarter isn't a trend, to be fair, but the, the market just didn't have much patience for it, so it it quickly went down about 15%. And then it was just sort of like a horse race for the day who was going to end down the most. And sadly, it, it was spirit. Um, then I would say this, and I think this is an, an important point for the, the big defense primes. If you look at how the defense services companies you know, performed, everything from Booz Allen, Lighthouse, uh, GDIT, um, those businesses are picking up. And what you're hearing from those management teams is one, and this is important, they're hiring people. And two, you're seeing their top lines grow. And those services business, as we all know, tend to have shorter duration backlog kind of programs. So they're really the canaries in the coal mine. When things start to get tough in defense markets, they see it first. And when things start to get better, they see it first. And they're seeing it now. And, and this it suggests to me, as we go through the second half of the year into next year, things are going to pick up for uh, the big primes uh, and, you know, the setup for the big primes is actually probably pretty darn good because of that. Um, so I, I, to me, I think that was probably some of the most important stuff. And then maybe one last point, and, and it really was surprising, um, you know, Bombardier closed down, uh, you know, almost uh, 10% on the week. And, you know, after reporting what was, I think by any measure, a good quarter, their cash flow was behind, I think where people thought it was and their cash flow management described as being kind of you know, second half of the year weighted. Folks aren't usually comfortable with that, but they delivered a bunch of airplanes and their book to bill was pretty good. And, you know, things that seem to be on the right track and they they've been focusing on growing their aftermarket business. And, and that seems to be working out well for them. And that's a, that's a, a, a well proven strategy. It's something that Gulfstream's done for many, many years. Um, and their shares were down 10%. So I think, it, 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 what does this all say? I think expectations in commercial markets are very high. And you, know, you might argue even ahead of themselves where expectations in defense markets, and you can see this, you know, as Sash said with BAE Systems, aren't that high. So the funny thing about the market always is it, it isn't necessarily kind of you know, what the company says, but it's what the company says relative to where expectations are. Uh, and I think what we're seeing kind of through this earnings print period is that, um, you know, the, the market might be a little bit of a head of, its, head of itself on expectations for commercial. And, you know, in, in my humble opinion, probably a little behind itself on expectations for defense. Um, Richard, uh, your take on uh, the spirit news and and any of the other broader sort of commercial theme or even defense theme, right? Because you've got you've got some defense chops there too. Uh, give kind of give us your sense on the the U.S. earnings profile. 
Yeah, you know, strong, like, uh, like, like my colleague said, um, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> we all know this is going to be a very strong environment for, for some time. The spirit news, of course, was kind of predictable. Uh, there's a bunch of mechanics, of course, going on there in, in and above, you know, above there, the usual news about the 737 troubles and uh, the, the extent that they rely upon Boeing and, and the 737. Um, but in general, you know, I mean, this is a, this this remains a, a pretty positive story. You know, the BAE systems news from uh, from Europe, as Sash uh, described, you know, it, it, it shows that if you do have a presence on both sides of the Atlantic and you're nicely exposed to key growth defense markets, you know, you're going to do particularly well. The Rolls Royce uh, news that I saw was was also rather positive. Um, that was, of course, interesting because if there's one single large aerospace and defense company that's been hit hardest uh, during by, during the pandemic and the aftermath, it was it was certainly Rolls Royce. So uh, so clearly, even if they are not completely out of the woods, there was uh, there was some welcome news. Sash, anything you want to add from a, a, a European view of what's going on uh, in uh, U.S. earnings and especially on the commercial news? I mean, not um, uh, not particularly um, on the sort of commercial side, but I mean, I think ju just to cap one thing that Richard said about uh, BA systems. What was really what is really interesting about BA systems is that very very little of the upturn they are seeing at the moment is directly related relatable to orders that have been placed in response to the Russian invader invasion of Ukraine. It's it's a much more a broader upturn in markets that they serve. I mean, in fact, the business that really, really performed well as the submarines business. And there's quite a lot of evidence that the UK government is putting more money uh, into uh, submarine programs, particularly the dreadnought ballistic missile submarines, but um, probably as we go through the rest of this year, the AUKUS submarines as well. So, you know, what I think people might describe as being sort of old style, uh, conventional global warfare things rather than Ukraine things are actually what's driving one of the one of Europe's biggest defense primes. And that's a that, that's very interesting to see because it suggests that this is a much better play on broadly rising defense budgets than specific uh, items of uh, you know artillery, ammunition or, or armored vehicles or so forth directly for Ukraine. Yeah, they're benefiting from that, but it's it's small older by comparison with the, the big long cycle stuff. Um, you know, I, I think that that's uh, it's uh, dead on the mark, uh, uh, Sash. And I think that people have a tendency of forgetting that if you look at the UK, for example, the kind of the extraordinary space investment that's happening in, you know, situational awareness, partnerships with the United States and Australia, right? I mean, so AUKUS is one element of that. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of, again, that strategic level investment uh, that's uh, being made. Uh, and when you talk to folks, you know, they talk about, okay, well, yeah, we gave a lot of storm shadow to the Ukrainians. That just means we have to get to the next generation uh, of long range strike weapon. And actually, I wanted to start with you on this because last week we didn't get a chance to get to your sense uh, on the war. Uh, we'll we'll get to unmanned aviation in a, in a minute. I figure that's a good, good place to end the program. Um, well, you know, there are concerns even among um, uh, those who are supplying Ukraine uh, that um, we are going to be running out of ammunition to give them. Uh, and that's in part the, the Russian um, uh, play. I mean, in fact, while we have a tendency of sort of looking down our nose at the Russians and Russian capabilities and that they're buffoons, um, a, a European military leader I spoke to last week uh, actually made the case that, you know, no other country he knows would every other day for more than 500 days be able to send 20 
uh, or 30 cruise missiles, uh, along with uh, a couple of dozen UAVs uh, on long range strikes and actually do it relatively precisely, forcing the Ukrainians to shoot down a lot of stuff and the stuff that get, you know, I mean, there are leakers and it hits apartment buildings and some of it may be not as precise as you'd like, but it, it, no other nation would be able to do that over such a sustained period. And oh, by the way, the Russians are running their plants uh, 24-7. Uh, ultimately, what are your concerns about how we're spending and the speed at which we're spending? And I know we keep coming back to this issue. Uh, and, and Ron, maybe a little bit of your sense here on whether or not we have greater clarity in the wake of some of this. But I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely a little bit concerned that whatever it is we're building is sort of on a much more leisurely pace or maybe a more intelligent pace, right? I mean, we don't, you know, we don't want to replace like for like. I mean, we, we have whole supply chain issues. We may think we're moving fast relative to the glacial place, pace we were moving, but it doesn't seem to me we're moving at any sort of alacrity. What is happening to replace Storm Shadow and Scalp missiles, to more than 200 of which may have gone to the Ukrainians at this point, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of very curious at getting to this because I just see us all running out of stuff before the Russians do. And I think that's the Russian strategy. Couldn't agree more. I think that's, um, I, I, I think that is the risk and that is their strategy. Uh, so what, I mean, I worry less about cruise missiles. You know, we, uh, the UK, France bought um, you know, roughly 700 each Storm Shadow and the French equivalent Scalp. Uh, we've probably given a hundred each to the Ukrainians. We've used a hundred more. Uh, over the you know previous 15, uh, 20 years of service or so. It was going to re be replaced anyway by a future cruise anti-ship, um, a big ambitious program. Um, my feeling would be that just as we've seen evidence that even the UK government, and the UK government has, you know, the UK has got a, a 1,500-mile security blanket, which is every other European nation is between us and the Russians, which sometimes gives a morally dubious degree of sort of comfort in UK security policy. But you know, even the UK government is now starting to accelerate some key programs. Submarines now, I think Future Cruise Anti-Ship gets accelerated with a view to uh, bringing in the weaponry service before the end of the decade rather than sometime in the 2030s. Uh, and that's going to be what's needed. I, I think more broadly, European nations and the US are going to have a very, very uncomfortable minimum of 12 months, probably 15 to 18 months, where we have to dip into reserves we don't really have and, and take risk. Because the choice is going to be, we keep on supplying Ukraine at very, very high rates with, you know, and what they really need above all else is artillery ammunition. Everything else is nice to have, uh, but artillery ammunition is, is the stuff that matters disproportionately. Um, and I'm including uh, guided MLRS rockets in that. Because if we don't, Ukraine loses and we lose. And the downside is so much greater than the risk that we take. Certainly in Europe, you and the States, where the risk you take is a risk against China, are going to have a different um, uh, calculus there. But still, I think, you know, the downside of losing in, in Ukraine is, in, is incredibly high for all the Western nations concerned. Let's just, I mean, you know, if I take a step back for a second, What's happening in the war? I mean, there's there's really been two different themes this week. There's been the close battle and there's been the deep battle. The deep battle, the Ukrainians have shown a remarkable ability to do to develop indigenous unmanned systems and deploy them at long range. So drone strikes on Moscow. Does that, does that have a military effect? Indirect. Does it have a, 
an effect on morale on both sides, actually very, very high indeed. Um, military effect, probably greater, the uh, unmanned um, uh, naval system that they used um, on the Russian fleet at uh, Novorossiysk, um, where they used a, uh, a remotely controlled vessel with a warhead of probably around four or 500 uh, kilograms to severely damage a, a large Russian landing ship. Um, this is stuff that they probably wouldn't have been able to do at the start of the war. They're developing these capabilities. You know, the Russian Navy goes through phases where, it, where they think they have a degree of sea control in the Black Sea. They've probably got a degree of sea denial, but they certainly don't have sea control. And if they're being attacked in the base to which they've retreated, because they've largely withdrawn from Sevastopol, um, that's a really impressive achievement by the Ukrainians. But I think that's long-term stuff. Um, what we're seeing in terms of the offensive, and I use that term advisedly, is that our hopes, and probably their hopes, of a relatively rapid armoured combined arms breakthrough the Russian line simply hasn't happened. Why not? I think the brutal truth is that we and they left it too long. We didn't supply the equipment and training, the tanks, the fighting vehicles, the extra artillery and the training soon enough. And it didn't appear as combat power for the Ukrainians until well into the spring. And all the time that that took, the Russians were building very, very deep multi-layered defensive lines. Defensive lines is not just trenches, not even just barbed wire, but it's, um, uh, it's killing areas for uh, anti-armor weapons, killing areas for uh, your artillery and very, very dense minefields. And you know, the Russians have got a lot of mines and really know how to use them. Um, so we've learned the lesson, but more importantly, the poor Ukrainians have learned the lesson with blood that you cannot just, to use the awful phrase, punch through this sort of layered defense. What we're seeing at the moment, therefore, is um, they, 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 there are some indications that they're actually doing quite well, but quite well from a fairly low base in the south, um, basically heading down towards the, uh, the Black Sea coast. Um, but I do worry about over-focusing on Twitter because it obsesses with what turn out to be incredibly small villages. Um, but more broadly, the Ukrainians, rather than trying to hope for a breakthrough and indeed using combined arms, uh, formations to try to break through these defensive lines and getting bogged down on minefields and losing, they're actually um, going back to what they're very, very good at, which is identifying Russian artillery, identifying their ammunition supply points, identifying their counter-battery radars and killing them. You kill the counter-battery radars and the Russians cannot respond as effectively to Ukrainian artillery. You kill their supply dumps and then they don't have as much ammunition to reply to the Ukrainians, and then you can attack their guns as well. And I think the Ukrainians are being incredibly smart about this problem. It's a longish game. It's a probably several months game. And the West does not, ex you know, may not have the strategic patience for that yet. But it seems to me that that's how the, that's how the, the land battle, the close battle is going. And then there are essentially low level infantry assaults on individual uh, parts of the Russian defensive lines, basically bite and hold. Um, and that's a tactic that was first used in the First World War in about 1917, which just shows how far um, uh, we've gone in all this. Um, but, you know, big armoured breakthroughs, I, you know, that could be weeks or months away yet, unfortunately. Yeah, just one final thing, um, uh, just so it really gives our, our listeners, a, you know, just a constant reminder of the scale of artillery use in this um, war. Ukrainians have probably got around 100, 150 um, 
heavy artillery pieces, 155 millimeter artillery pieces in, um, you know, in operation or close to operation at any one time. Um, and the sort of battles that they are fighting, these weapons will be firing somewhere between 100 and 150 and 250 rounds of 105 millimeter every single day. Um, amusingly, uh, they can't, you know, interestingly, they can't fire more than 250 rounds a day because they overheat. And at that stage, you know, the weapon becomes genuinely dangerous to the side that's firing it. But, you know, 250 rounds a day is not an unknown uh, uh, number of rounds for artillery in a defensive role to be firing. So, you know, that means roughly that the Ukrainians are firing, you know, to be super conservative, 10,000 rounds a day, but more likely closer to 20,000 rounds uh, a day, um, which means that the 300,000 rounds that the US uh, uh, is reported to have withdrawn from stocks in Israel uh, at the beginning of this year gets used up in three weeks. Um, that's the scale of usage, and that's what uh, US and European and rest of world production has got to uh, catch up with. And that's why it, it is so incredibly frustrating to see that, you know, when we see this production sort of rising gently through 2024 and into right. 2025, right. that's why stocks are being run down now. And that's the risk that we have to take. And, and again, why, uh, why we went to um, uh, cluster munitions, aside from the fact that they wanted to clear minefields, right? I mean, the Ukrainians yeah. didn't want them, but we were also running out of regular uh, bullets. Uh, just a quick reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, including Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters the downlink with laura winter who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by ge aerospace that i co-host with our very own jj Gurkler. uh ron is there anything you want to uh, add uh to that as somebody who's been watching u.s munitions carefully yeah i mean i think uh, you know sas is right on um you're starting to see it pick up you know if you look at this last earnings period uh lockheed martin's misses missing Emission systems and fire control business was uh, their book to bill was 3.3, which means they're taking a lot of orders, um, but they have to convert those orders into actual stuff. Uh, and that's just going to take time. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the timeline that Sash laid out is probably dead on right. So then what would happen is we start to bottom out before we start to uh, grow it. Although I have to say, I mean, I, I think we have to just be putting in biblical sized orders. I'm sorry. I, I think we've got to fill up our stocks. Uh, and so it's not just satisfying the Ukrainian need, which will be voracious. I think, you know, you got to replenish your own stocks because your adversaries know how to count. Um, uh, Richard, do you want to add anything before we go to uh, this group's collective favorite topic ever? Yeah, I just wouldn't mind uh, adding a bit from my uh, my grad school days and war studies and a bit of macro theory. You know, it it does seem that technologies uh, tend to evolve in a kind of offensive, defensive dialectic. You know, obviously there's so much more to <laughs> fighting a war than that. Morale being moral being to the physical is three to one, uh, three is to one, as Clausewitz said. But if you look at the development of technologies over over centuries, it, it typically goes to a cycle that favors the offense or the defense. You know, the classic example being smokeless powder, breech-loading guns, rapid-firing uh, machine guns, whatever else that shifted the balance towards the defense sometime just after the Civil War and continuing through the early years of World War One, And then, of course, towards the offense, Blitzkrieg, mechanized warfare, whatever. It seems to me that the age of miniaturization, precision-guided munitions, and whatever else, assuming you have two sides that 
uh, you know, one of which is not not Saddam Hussein's incompetent army, uh, then basically you have a situation where the defense seems to be heavily favored now. Uh, and I think we observed that in the first few days when you had the javelin being almighty and people saying, wow, China would have to be completely insane to do something stupid with Taiwan now because you arm them to the hilt with lots of missiles. You really create the, create a porcupine. They're going to hunker down and survive. It could be, unfortunately, that it works both ways. The Ukrainians are now finding that out. Those Russian lines are really well uh, provisioned for the defense given technology trends. And well, you still have a battle of logistics, as Sash says, and to see who can outproduce and outpatient and whatever else. But in terms of technology development, clearly the defense now has a bit of an upper hand. Uh, and I should point out your degree is from the illustrious King's College, the world's leading uh, military program uh, and uh, something that has held you in remarkably good stead, I would say. For, uh, for however, <laughs> 40, 35 years, however long it's been. But yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, in, in, indeed. Um, uh, let's... Um, Let's shift to uh, 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 EVTOL uh, aircraft. I went to a dinner, uh, a very interesting dinner uh, with some advanced air mobility uh, folks. Uh, and it was a terrific uh, conversation, a measured conversation about what the future uh, of uh, the market uh, is going to be. I know that we've got some thoughtful critics on this uh, program uh, about it. And I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, contract Archer Aviation has gotten from AFWorks, the Air Force's uh, innovation uh, arm. Uh, I believe it's $6 million. Six midnight vehicles could be worth up to $142 million. Uh, program uh, began a couple of years ago. Um, I think Will Roper was one of the people driving this to sort of see, hey, what, what's the military utility uh, of these uh, aircraft. I think Joby Aviation is uh, also likely to follow in this path. Um, a lot of conversation about why these companies, right? I mean, not seeing the commercial growth or also trying to get the military side of the business. Um, you know, Ron, why don't you uh, start us off uh, in terms of, you know, utility value? And I kind of want to go around the horn and get everybody's uh, take on this because I think eventually, you know, th there is capability here uh, over time likely to be demonstrated. And so, you know, the military always wants to see, I don't know, can I get four people and X amount of cargo an X distance and do it economically uh, and reliably? And if you can do it in an automated fashion, uh, even the WISC, I think, is the first one who's just trying to go directly to automation, right? I mean, Jody Archer, everybody else are going to be, uh, you know, manned before they become unmanned. But Ron, start us off on, on the impact and the implications of this. Well, there's definitely science and engineering and, you know, interesting things going on here. But I would say this, you know, as we know, these vehicles today, their utility is limited. They have limited range. They have limited cargo capability. And a lot of those limitations are just driven by the physics of uh, the power system on the airplane, you know, elect electronics. Uh, electric power is heavy. Batteries are heavy. We all know that. Um, batteries tend to lend themselves better to terrestrial vehicles, cars, trucks, because the weight is less important. You know, that being said, uh, you know, we're seeing, you know, vehicles fly. Uh, you've got a, a couple companies out there, more than a couple, probably five or six, um, that are going to try to get vehicles certified. Um, that I would say today is going to be a bigger challenge than many of them claim, not all of them. Uh, eventually will a couple vehicles get certified they will 
how they will be deployed and, and, and what purposes, I think at this point, it's probably a little bit unclear. When I look at the market, the one area that does jump out to me, and, and, and maybe for the military, it does make sense, maybe moving cargo over small distances, troops over small distances, um, that kind of thing. But your, your distances are, are limited. On the one hand, um, you could argue that these vehicles would be quieter than typical vertical lift, and they are. Um, if you listen to them, they are quieter. They're not silent, but they're a hell of a lot quieter than right. uh, the helicopters. Um, but you know, there, there's also, you know, on the negative side, like I said, some limitations. Can you imagine them being used in some sort of urban application? You could. Um, but I think a point that will be raised and is a valid point, we don't see that today with just sort of normal helicopters. And there may be reasons why that doesn't happen, but there's also really good reasons why that doesn't happen. So, you know, it's I think it's one of those things that we have to kind of kind of wait and see. Are there technologies that could be developed here and used in other places? Um, yeah, potentially, right? I mean, there's control system technology, like you alluded to, um, uh, automation technology and autonomy technology. Uh, I think propulsion technology, in the end, what I think many of these companies are finding out is the motors that they need. You just can't buy off the shelf from a, from a typical supplier. They're very specialized. And uh, so we'll see where it all goes. Um, but I mean, at this point, I, I'm a little bit in stand back and, and and watch mode, um, the, the idea of sort of that Uber X configuration where we'll be flying around cities and these things, I've never believed in that and I still don't. Um, do I think I can go to, you know, my local uh, neighborhood parking garage? So for me, that would be the parking garage in Chatham, New Jersey or Summit, New Jersey, get on one of these things and fly it to lower Manhattan? I doubt it uh, in my lifetime and maybe not even in the lifetime of my kids. So right. we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but uh, will we see some vehicles fly around? Yeah. Will we see a vehicle or two get certified? Yeah. Ultimately, how big the market is and how they're applied, that's a question mark. Uh, in, in, indeed, even though I think it, battery power is is getting uh, steadily better uh, and better, so we'll see uh, what, what uh, happens with that. Um, uh, Sash, uh, why don't you take it? And then uh, Richard, want to get your uh, sense on this as well. Go ahead. I think... The point that I really want to bring out from what Ron just said, and I don't disagree with anything he said at all, but is the degree to which military military air, in its broadest sense, fixed wing, fast, slow, um, you know, vertical takeoff, whatever, is um, becoming incredibly power intensive, and the requirements of power are going up faster than the ability to make the devices that need the power power efficient. Um, it's very, it would be almost inconceivable that any military, and I'll use the word helicopter, but, you know, for helicopter eVTOL, uh, in the future will not have a complete defensive aid suite. And defensive aid suites, um, using a mixture of, um, you know, warners, radar, IR, uh, detectors, jammers, um, and so forth, are pretty heavy, and weight has a direct effect on helicopter performance, or you know, currently does, we know that, but they are very, very power intensive indeed. That has a much bigger burden on a, um, a, a military eVTOL than it would on a, um, a military helicopter where you, um, you deal with the issue predominantly by very slightly bigger engines uh, consuming more fuel, but the payload, uh, the payload range penalty is not that great. On something that relies just on batteries, it's absolute. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that I, th I, I didn't see a great deal of comment about. But the other point I'd just make is, I mean, our thesis in is increasingly that uh, military 
rotary wing or military uh, advanced uh, future vertical lift, to use the US uh, program term, is becoming a hell of a lot bigger. Look at the V280 Valor produced by Bell, um, which uh, won the Flara contract. Um, it's nearly 50% bigger in terms of its maximum takeoff weight than the uh, than the UH-60, the, uh, the you know the ubiquitous Black Hawk, because that's what's required to get the, the combination of uh, speed and range in particular for a broadly similar payload. Um, our feeling is that, that we're going to end up with fewer military helicopters, but they get or vertical lift machines. We're going to be a lot bigger. That's a very very difficult market for eVTOL with its current technology to chase, certainly in this decade. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, it's a very uh, astute point about the growth and the size of, you know, military helicopters, right? I mean, we started with things like the Bell 47, and we're ending up now uh, with something that is uh, a tilt rotor, which is different than a helicopter, but certainly uh, changes the vertical lift uh, equation. Although I am stunned how often you'll be on a helicopter that has, you know, the air crew, a couple of passengers, a couple of boxes, and the boxes a priority. You know, I mean, that's one of the challenges and, and why the Marine Corps maintains the Yankees because it doesn't, you know what I mean? The the 40, the V-22 is too big uh, to move, uh, as is called, ass and trash all over the battlefield. So they have something a little bit smaller when you're not taking as many people nor uh, carrying uh, as much uh, uh, cargo. Uh, Richard, uh, let's uh, have uh, your take on this and, and separating the charlatanism uh, from this and the hucksterism from it, from uh, the folks that are actually trying to do, you know, as, as, as Ron pointed out, a legitimate job in trying to advance the ball down the field. Yeah. Oh boy. This is going to take some time. I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to regard this as anything more than some kind of complicated national debt enhancement module, but I'll give it my best shot. First of all, let's look at this from the Air Force's perspective. The smallest uh, Air Force helicopter, the best of my knowledge, other than, you know, simple training machines, um, is the MH-130 United. Good luck scaling up anything uh, electric uh, until the next century to the MH-139 uh, size class. Good luck with that. So maybe Sash is right. Maybe there's electrified systems that will benefit indirectly. The alternative is that this is some, because you know none of, none of this is an Air Force mission. Forget about it, not happening. And from a training standpoint, no, you really can't train on battery and then transition to turbine, not happening. Super bad idea. Uh, now let's look at it from, gee, maybe this is, science and technology, okay, you're getting into industrial policy here, I guess. And I, you know, I don't want to pick on AFWorks because they do, well, they, they have great goals and they sometimes do great things. And I've got family from the Air Force science and technology side of the house. Um, and I have nothing but respect. But, you know, one of their biggest investments is boom. <laughs> at, at that point, you just say, wow, I can't wait to spend more of my hard-earned dollars on this. This is just brilliant. Boom appears to be, not to pick on Boom, but oh, what the hell, a, a collection of freehand drawings, nothing more. And the freehand drawings resemble a B-58 Hustler from, you know, half, from 70 years ago. I would think that this intellectual property would be in the Air Force's possession. There is no power plant. There is not even a vague roadmap to get to a power plant. Uh, the idea that this is one of AFWorks' biggest investments, what is that about? 
Has any, I mean, this just appears to be not industrial policy, but just some collection of wishful thinking. And I can't help but wonder whether it hasn't migrated over to the vertical lift side of the house too. As they would say, a lot to unpack there. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I think uh, the, the boom is a little bit more than just a slide deck, right? Um, I, I do think that they are doing a little bit of work. You, you can get an electronic if... version of the slide deck too. It's not just a, a hard <laughs> yes, copy yes, PowerPoint. It's, it's not available just in hard copy. Um, uh, anyway, it, it is going to be interesting to see whether or not, uh, right, I mean, this is also the great debate, and we've said this before, we should have the great uh, Dr. Adam Polarski uh, join us because uh, you, R Richard, and Adam are on opposite poles of this, right? I mean, he thinks the future is supersonic. Uh, you think uh, it, it's, it's dumber than dirt. Well, um, wait, 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 just a second. I, from a market standpoint, Adam and I would have a great debate. Love Adam. And he's got great not a market debate. This is a path to market debate. Correct. And what Boom has is not a path it's to not, market. It's not a path to market. It's a marketing correct. concept, which for some reason involves taking away dollars from, I don't know, the U.S. But, educational system or but, other useful defense products but, or something. But, but, but I mean, I, my question about what Archer, Joby, or anybody else is going to eventually end up doing with this is, is there not a value for being able to get up to a thousand pounds of cargo, 20 miles, drop it off, grab their cargo, move it back? Is there not a role Absolutely. for these aircraft on a battle? Okay. A absolutely. The, the, the Army, the Marines, and the Navy should all be interested in this. Why is it AFWorks? This is so far from an Air Force mission. It just it boggles the mind. Well, I think it's there. In fairness, it's it's not. They're I think doing this on behalf of uh, DoD, so they're just going to be involved in it in part because they're the ones who had contacts with a lot of these companies, you know, in in the course of their development. Right, Afworks was a little bit ahead of the power curve in terms of what it was doing uh, and standing up. Right, I mean, they were ahead of the other services in their innovation arms. Right. It could be just it, and they built a lot more links to Silicon Valley, and it's something that um, Will Roper, when he was uh, acquisition executive, ended up focusing on. That's I would also point out that you know this is this is not a shockingly new capability. I mean, I remember about a decade ago, I was on the the Collier Trophy Committee, and we looked at the you know the KMAX that had been set up to operate autonomously as a logistics vehicle for the Marines. And I think they used two in theater. That was the most they could come up with a use for. It didn't make a meaningful contribution. Logistics uh, in that size, in that class, are, it's just, it, just, it well, just doesn't really matter. In, in fairness, that's an external slung load, 6,000 pound lifter that does it actually relatively economically at $1,200 an hour, right? So, I mean, it's it's a different operating economics model, right? I'm talking about smaller, you know, the, the number of times you're moving 6,000 pounds on an external sling is um, a little bit less than maybe moving 500 pounds uh, somewhere or parts, you know, tools, uh, and, and other uh, sorts of stuff. So I'm, I'm just looking at, you know, how this necessarily changes, right? I mean, the introduction of additive manufacturing capability has been game-changing at sea and everywhere else, uh, right? Where the army was like, hey, wait a minute, instead of sending those parts, I can just send you the designs and you guys print the parts forward. You know, that too is going to play a role in this because that technology is exploding. I'm just sort of curious as to how you change kind of a hub and spoke operations and how you do your logistics, because right now your trucks are vulnerable. They're over land. And people shoot at them. So, you know, a lot of the things that we're looking at to do in power 
uh, and even use distributed hydrogen and hydrogen created at source for power generation are things that we're looking at because of the vulnerabilities, right? I mean, each gallon of gas is not just expensive, but also has lives attached to it. So I, you know, I'm not saying we're going to be flying fuel anywhere, uh, but I do think it's interesting how the Ukrainians managed to use the drones they developed to drop bombs uh, and grenades on Russians when the Novokovka dam was blown by the Russians. They were using some of these drones to drop off water and food and supplies uh, to uh, folks, which I thought was kind of an innovative, uh, innovative way of using the technology. Uh, before we uh, part, uh, Sash, there's one last point you want to make. Your point about uh, you know, the, the, this uh, initial thousand pound um, payload, the thousand pound payload is, you know, will be an impressive performance for, a, uh, for any small vertical uh, lift machine, um, you know, effectively that's that's three stroke, probably three passengers plus uh, plus pilot um, equivalent. But a thousand pounds in military logistics terms doesn't get you very far. Um, it gets you six right. rounds right. of 155 millimeter, um, and it gets you a uh, you know a number a, a standard case or standard crate of 5.56 uh, ammunition. Uh, even 100 rounds starts, or 7.62 starts off at 25 pounds and goes upwards. So um, generally, military pallets, which is the standard military load for doing war, right. are a ton and a half, 3,000 pounds. Right, right. I completely agree. I'm talking about some of the enabling things. You need a tire, you need uh, a pump, you need a generator set, you need wiring. Those are the kind of things I'm talking about. Substructure stuff. I'm not talking about the, you know, the heavy grunt lift, which is why the United States uh, Army you know, has not just tens of thousands of vehicles, uh, but also, you know, almost 3000 uh, helicopters that serve as its cargo and support functions and why the Chinook uh, is the most popular helicopter in the air and the army's inventory, because it's what moves the ammunition, the fuel and everything else that makes uh, makes life possible. I hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Always great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Vago, as always. A great consolation prize for coming back from Bali, Vago. So thank you. <laughs> Indeed. You came back, you're tired and you have to do the show. We thank you and a grateful audience thanks you. And thanks very much to the audience for uh, tuning in as you always do. And a very special thanks for to, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We'll be back again tomorrow with the Look Ahead program with Sam Bendet taking uh, of the uh, Center for Naval Analyses, taking a look at Ukraine's drone fleet uh, and how effectively they're using it. And Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Everybody, thanks very much. Have a great day.